Hello and welcome to Pairing, a podcast where we pair wine with art and pop culture. I am your host, Emma Scherzarko, and this is the fifth installment of our Harry Potter and New World Wine series, this time about Order of the Phoenix, book five. I was joined by none other than Julia Schifini of Spirits, Tides, and so many other podcasts that I can't name them all, and also our editor. I was very excited to have Julia back on the show to talk about this book, and also, finally, the wine region of Argentina. I've gotten so many requests to talk about Argentine wine more, and I'm so sorry it's taken so long to go into depth with it, but I knew I was going to in this episode, so I go into a little bit more information in this one than normally, so I hope this makes up for it a little bit. A huge thank you to our most beloved patrons, including our producers, Emma Cohen, Rena Sarame, Zoo Yorker, and Allison Turi, who would all be members of Dumbledore's Army. To our advanced producer, Mara Zobrist, who is more brilliant than Laura Catena, and to our master patron, Michael Beck, who is more awesome than Tonks and Luna combined. I am just blown away by all these wonderful, generous people and have been having so much fun working on bonus content for the Patreon. Our mini-episode for producers this month, I think, will be about Stranger Things, and we just had a really fun live-streamed episode about the ineffable concept of terroir for our advanced and master patrons. If that sounds fun to you, come check out what you can get access to at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast. Thank you also to our sponsor for this episode, Wink. Wink is a wine subscription service head and shoulders above the rest, and I'll tell you all about it later on, but for now, if you're intrigued, you can go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order. Last but not least, thank you to you for listening. If you'd like to support our show without spending a dime, please consider recommending us to a friend or rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you have a favorite episode, why not send that to someone you know who'd like it? These are the best ways to get more folks listening in, and we want to keep on growing, so thank you for sharing pairing. Without further ado, here is episode 42, The Order of the Phoenix, with Julia Schifini. I am just absolutely thrilled to welcome back to Pairing, uh, someone who you haven't heard in a while, but who has been an integral part of the Pairing experience, Julia Schifini, who has also been uh, our editor these past few months. So welcome back. Julia. Thank you. I'm so excited. We're, we're, we're really running the, the gambit of topics, I, I feel like, for the episode. I know. I feel like, <laughs> let's see, we've done Thor, women's wrestling, and now Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. I think those are like the three pillars of entertainment and that we've got it all covered. Yeah, we're really, we're really <laughs> just covering all of our bases. We, we are. We are. Um, well, we've been talking about doing this for a long time, and so I am very excited that we are going to be talking about the fifth book, The Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, this is this is my second favorite book after Prisoner of Azkaban, mm. which surprises a lot of people because a lot of people don't like this book. Yes, and that's something that that's part of the reason why I wanted to have you on to do this 
book because I knew that you are you're a big fan of it. Mm-hmm. And I I fall into the camp of I initially really didn't like this book or like in the scheme of Harry Potter, I didn't like the book. Like I still liked it, but mm-hmm. it was I would have considered it my least favorite for a while. And upon every reread, I like it more and more and appreciate what J.K. Rowling is doing in it Mm. because she's really made some big strides in it, I think, um, in terms of like what she's the, the message that she's trying to put out there. And I definitely I can't wait to talk all about it and hear all your thoughts. But it has been almost a year and a half of pairing And it has come to my attention from some listeners that I have yet to talk about Argentina, Mm. which is one of the most important wine regions in the world. I don't know how I managed to do this. I am so sorry. But (laughs) please do cry for me, Argentina. But because the plan of uh, this Harry Potter series is to pair each book with a different major New World wine region... For this book, I chose Argentina, and I have I have some reasons why, mm-hmm. and I will get into those. But I just wanted to start out with some general Argentina information, if you will indulge me, Julia. Oh, please. I know nothing about Argentinian wine, so I'm excited to learn. Yes. It's one of the regions that I know the least about, but I still know some, and I've been doing some research, and it's incredibly important. So I am just going to give you a little information about it. Okay, so just speaking geographically, most of the wine in Argentina, because Argentina is obviously huge, most of the wine is produced kind of in the central northern part of the country on the eastern slopes of the Andes. So most of the wine production happens at very high elevation in kind of more of like a desert climate. Okay. And the largest region there is called Mendoza. So the majority of Argentinian wine that you're going to see in America is from Mendoza. There's a few other regions, um, including kind of interest, some really interesting wines come out of Patagonia, which is a little mm. bit more south. And I'll talk about some of some of those wines a little bit later. But so, um, so I was talking about in the Sorcerer's Stone episode way back in the day, I was talking about Chile a little bit. And Argentina's wine history, the history of its winemaking, is very similar to Chile's in many ways, um, in that it sort of, quote-unquote, began, at least in, like, you know, the Western colonial sense, in the 16th century when Spanish missionaries came over and started bringing over some cuttings of vines Mm -hmm. and planting them and started growing grapes, like European varietals. There were probably, you know, indigenous grapes before that, that I'm sure people were making into wine, but we don't have record of that. And, you know, people don't like to keep record of what happened before, you know, (sighs) Europe came and cut. Imperialism and colonialism are just terrible. Very terrible. I bet we can talk about that a little bit in, uh, in regards to this book. Yes, we can. Maybe not colonial. Well, actually, no, we could. Okay. Um, <laughs> Fascism as a whole, but, I think, is a really good conversation to have about this book. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it is a very timely moment to be talking about that in our own political environment, I feel like. So, yeah. So, so the Spanish missionaries came over in the 16th century. 
And then in the 1820s, you know, like wine was sort of happening, but it wasn't like a real industry or anything in Argentina for a while. Then in the 1820s, French and Italian immigrants started coming to Argentina and they brought some of their own vines. And that's when like Malbec got brought over and Mm -hmm. Argentina is most famous for its Malbec, um, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. And then this guy, this French guy, he founded the Quinta Nacional, which is which was a national vine nursery, which Ooh. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah. And that really started um, helping Argentina's wine growth flourish. And then between that and then the railroad between, you know, like the Andes and Buenos Aires mm-hmm. being built, that really helped in just growing the the wine industry within Argentina itself. Interestingly enough, Argentina didn't really export a ton of wine until kind of the late 20th century. Okay. Yeah, or at least uh, as far as I can tell. Like, whatever they would export before, it was really not considered, like, very good, mm-hmm. quote-unquote. Um, but then starting in the late 20th century and the early 2000s, that was when they really started becoming, like, a player on the national stage. Okay. And, yeah, and so my favorite wine writer, Karen McNeil, um, who wrote the Wine Bible, which I always like to recommend to people, she <laughs> she described Argentina's wine industry as a sleeping giant. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, it's, it's like grop. Basically, <laughs> Argentina is, like, the grop. Of the wine industry. There we go. Um, <laughs> there's, right, our, right. there's our reference. I got it. There, yeah, I know, right? I'm, I'm so good at these, these segues. <laughs> but yes, so right now, Argentina is the fifth largest producer of wine in the world. Wow. But my, one of my favorite facts about Argentina is they're, I think they're the fifth largest producer, but I think they are the like per capita greatest consumer of wine. Fair. So... Like in the 90s, in the 80s or 90s, it used to, they used to consume on average 26 gallons per capita. That's 98 liters per year. That's a lot. Now it's more like 10 gallons per year. To give you a sense, all of the United States is about 2.4 gallons per year. So Argentinians like, they like to drink their wine. Um, Apparently. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, I was like, man, yeah, they they like to consume a lot of wine. And you know what? We'd need to consume a lot of wine while reading this book because it is Mm. the longest book in the Harry Potter series. We can get through a whole bottle just reading this book. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. At least. Um, (laughs) And then, okay, so just closing out this first little intro information on Argentina. I picked it for this book because of... Argentina's reputation because you know we were just talking about how a lot of people don't like this book or have Mm -hmm. mixed feelings about this book a lot of people in the wine industry have that kind of relationship with Argentinian wine Mm -hmm. so okay before before all the Argentine people stop listening um (laughs) hear me out hear me out um the reason why is because when when Argentina's wine industry kind of exploded Malbec became so popular, not just here, not, I mean, like in the United States, in Argentina, that it kind of fell victim to what happens with 
like a lot of big California wineries and it just became really mass produced. Yeah, oversaturating the market. Exactly, exactly. And so most of the wines out there were not very good, particularly Malbecs out there mm-hmm. were just not very well made. And so what is interesting is that I feel like Malbec is actually one of the wines that gets people into wine initially. Mm-hmm. Like I think that was the case with me and a lot of pe- other people who I talked to like they're like, yeah, I started, you know, drinking like Malbecs and that got me really interested in wine. And then all of a sudden, like after a little while, we all stopped liking Malbec. <laughs> and <laughs> and it was like it's, it's such a weird phenomenon. I guess it's like just your palate kind of evolving over yeah. time. And Malbec, I think, is a really good introduction to wine because for the most part, it's pretty simple. Like it's it's a very full-bodied red grape, but it's very smooth and like juicy. It can be kind of jammy. Like there's not too much going on to mm-hmm. it, but it's a little bit more interesting than uh, your like, I don't know, other other kind of mass-produced wines from California. Don't want to name drop. Don't want to call out any specific names, but. <laughs> oh, no, I would never. I would never except I've totally done that before. But mm. <laughs> um, but so many of my friends and co- colleagues in the wine industry, we've had this experience of like loving Malbec at first, then hating it, and then eventually coming back around, trying it again and being like, oh, if it's made well, it's really good. And so that's my experience with Malbec, and I feel like that's my experience with this book. Yeah, I think that's totally fair yeah okay so that's my little opening spiel Mm -hmm. of argentina i've got more stuff to tell you julia later i don't doubt it but let's dive in let's dive into this book i am very curious to hear your experience your feelings there's a lot to unpack here yeah so i think i would start with the idea that for me this book felt like things are getting super serious you know we, we yeah. finish off yeah. goblet of fire with the death of cedric diggory and the return of voldemort but now we're like in the thick of things when it comes to order of the yeah. phoenix and we're, we're finally seeing this kind of area of espionage and shadows of what the first wizarding war looked like so for me this felt almost like a turn into Uh, like an espionage thriller series of Harry Potter, whereas the other ones had more of the basic structure of, oh, go to school, magic's great, something bad happens, Uh uh-oh, Voldemort's back, gotta fight him, he's gone for now, which this has, but it feels like the stakes have absolutely been raised. Absolutely. I really do think that this book marks a huge shift in style, you know, I mean, the overall tone of the book is still similar, I would say. But in many ways, you know, I think part of why I I and many others initially didn't love it was because we had this idea of what Harry Potter was, and mm-hmm. this is very different. Yeah. While still being very much part of the world and, like, cohesive and everything, but shit gets real. Yeah. And... In, and in a kind of more nuanced way than it's happened in any of the other books. Absolutely. Obviously, the 
biggest thing to me in this book is Umbridge. Mm. And uh, she is <laughs> she is so scary. She is mm. so scary because she is so real. Yeah. And and we haven't seen like, you know, in, in all the previous books, the villains have still been very fantastical mm-hmm. while while still being, you know, scary, while while being frightening. There's there's an element to it that doesn't feel quite like it could happen in this world, in the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Umbridge feels very much like she could exist, and there are many Umbridges who do exist in yeah. this world. I, I think it's really interesting, too, because the introduction of Umbridge, up until this point, we've kind of had that theme that runs through all of Harry Potter where it's... Uh, adults are kind of incompetent or they don't believe us when we tell them things. So we're just going to go around them and do what we need to do, which is absolutely the theme in this. But with the Order of the Phoenix and specifically with Dumbledore's army in in the series, it it's less about, oh, the adults are not going to teach us the things we need to teach. So we have to go around them. It's actively we cannot trust the adults. So we have to form our own thing. And at the same time, kind of along those lines, like the one adult that, well, not the only one, but like the main adult that Harry seeks out for guidance or wants to seek out for guidance is ignoring him the whole yeah. time. And and that feeling of like helplessness and not knowing what's going on. Like I read a lot of Harry's angst, at, like when I first read it. Because it is a very angsty book. Yes. Um, and I know that that's, that's many people's... I would argue Prisoner of Azkaban is probably the most angsty. I I can see... But also, Prisoner of Azkaban is my favorite of the books, so I can't complain Prisoner... about it. Oh, it's my, it's, it's my favorite, too. Mm-hmm. While in this book, it feels like every, every day, like, there's a new thing that Harry is upset about. Mm-hmm. And... Which is fair. Which is really fair. He has a lot, a lot to be upset about. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I I also, you know, what what I didn't really appreciate, I think when I first read it is how much the book is kind of a metaphor for mental illness and trauma. Yeah. Between what Harry's going through and, you know, the starting to have the visions and the dreams and the kid's been through a lot of trauma and like get him in therapy, you know? Mm-hmm. Like don't don't make him go take occlumency with Snape. Like that doesn't seem <laughs> occlumency with Snape feels like going to a therapist, but the therapist doesn't believe or trust when you tell them what your symptoms yeah. are. <laughs> Which, like you know, that happens. Not every therapist is like the perfect therapist for you and handling your issues and stuff like that. It's true. And and with Harry, you know, displaying many signs of post traumatic stress disorder. And just, you know, living as, like, someone probably with, like, anxiety and depression, let's be honest. Yeah. That's not the right – having such an aggressive way of handling his problems is not what is going to help him at the end of the day. Absolutely not. No, it's really, really true. And it's interesting, you know, like, Hermione's response to what Harry has to say about the occlumency lessons. Mm -hmm. You know, her her response is, well, just keep doing it. Just do it. Just do it. And – that's an easy response to have, I think, if you can't, ex- if you're not experiencing what the other person is experiencing, yeah. you know, like she's trying to be supportive, of mm-hmm. course, and trying to help him. But 
as as I got as I've gotten older and also as someone who's had to deal with anxiety and depression when people are just like well just just like you know try to be happy or like just do what they say to do you know it's like that's hard that's hard yeah. sometimes and you have to like accept that I can't do that sometimes right. so um so I really I really appreciate that element of the book now and I think that JK does does a very good job conveying that without saying that that's what she's conveying mm-hmm. and also oh the other thing i i made a little note of is uh the scene in oh what's it called the saint mungo's mm. with neville's with neville's parents yeah. in this book that is just so heartbreaking to me so heartbreaking one of the things that just completely wrecks me every time i see fiction um is dementia or alzheimer storylines i don't know why none of my Mm -hmm. close family members have suffered that at all but the idea of like not being able to comprehend your reality is so unbelievably frightening to me and like a frightening reality for a lot of people and a lot of families but in particular that always rocks me in a way i can't quite describe i don't have any family members who who have Alzheimer's or dementia, but I have some close family friends who have or have had um, early onset Alzheimer's, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it, it's just so horrible because it's like you really are a shell. I mean, who knows what the experience of having the disease is, yeah. but I think what's so hard about it is that the people who love them are are there to take care of them. Or not, as the case may be, sometimes. Yeah. But they're they're no longer themselves, and that's a very scary thing. Um, yeah, it it always really gets me too. And what I like isn't the right word, <laughs> but what I appreciate about you know the fact that we do get to see Neville's parents is kind of up until this point, Neville's story has been kind of theoretical. Mm-hmm. You know, we we get we start getting it a little bit in book four, where we 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 get a little bit more information. Mm-hmm. But now, like, I think in the book, just Harry sees him at Saint Mungo's. Is that correct? I, I think, think so. so. And I think so. No, um, wait, hold on, and- because they're in the same ward as Lockhart, and I think that right. Ron is with him. Hold on, I'm gonna double check. Yeah. Let's let's go to the text. What I might be actually what I might be thinking of is that he might have learned in the fourth book what happened to Neville's parents. Yes. But he doesn't tell he doesn't tell Ron or Hermione or anybody. Mm-hmm. And then in in this book they all see Neville's parents there and they're like, I had no idea. And Harry's like, Well, I did. Yeah. But he, he did a good job keeping keeping that secret. Which, like, looking back at the context of that scene with the fake Moody making them do the unforgivable curses and the fact that it is one of the people that tortured Neville's parents to the point of, like, just becoming shells of their own selves. Oh, boy. That is... So sadistic. I know. If you you reread Goblet of Fire remembering that Moody is not Moody, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it is a very different experience yes it is i don't know but we do get to see real moody for the first time we do in this book and as well as a few new characters in the order including 
a couple of my favorites, uh, Kingsley Shacklebolt and Tonks. Oh, Nymphadora Tonks is by far my favorite character in the whole Harry Potter series. Ugh, such a good choice. Like so 100%. Good. I just, everything about her touched my like 15 year old soul when this book came out. I don't know how old I was. Absolutely. I was probably younger than that, but I just. Let's see. I think it came out 2003. So oh, then I, I was eleven. Jesus, all right. Yeah, I was I was thirteen when it came out. So, and <laughs> part of it was maybe because I was at my angstiest then, mm. and so <laughs> it hit a little too close to home for me, Possible. maybe. But I but I do think that you know this was the first time that we had to wait a really long time between books. Yeah, because because Goblet of Fire came out in two thousand, and I. I'm pretty sure that I read Goblet of Fire right when it came out. Like, I think that was the first book, maybe the first or second book that I read, like, when it came out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, waited in line, had the party for it and everything. Yeah. But then this was the first time that we had to wait three years to see what happened. Yeah. And I think that, that, like, shock of it being so different Mm -hmm. and, like, having the enemy be, like the government mm-hmm. much more so than than like Voldemort. God in two thousand three no less. Right. Right. We didn't we didn't know then. I know. <laughs> Speaking of fascism, yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> we don't need to get too political or anything, but this book feels very prescient right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I wrote down I feel like right now we're living in Order of the Phoenix times. And yeah. <laughs> and it could go either way. Which means it only gets worse from here. God damn it. Well, well, maybe we can turn things around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But where you start seeing the beginnings, the signs, like even just the first chapter where Harry's like trying to catch the news yeah. and starting to hear about, you know, just little little clues of what's of what's going on and then the Dementor attack. I was talking about, I think in, uh, yeah, in the Prisoner of Azkaban episode, I was talking about how I think that in a lot of ways that book is a criticism of, like, law enforcement mm-hmm. and the justice system. But um, I think there's that kind of comes in in an interesting way in this book with the Dementors and the Dementor attack right off the bat. Mm-hmm. You know, like... These quote unquote police in 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 a certain way, you know, they're the guards of the prison. They have gone rogue and they've got their own agenda now and they are not very nice. <laughs> nope, they are not. Not not a single fuck given because they're not human. Yeah, exactly. They literally give no fucks. One thing, um, a pairing listener uh, named Samantha sent me an email a really long time ago and was like, when you get to Order of the Phoenix, I have a really good pairing for Umbridge. And their pairing for her is Moscato. And I think that that's a good one. It almost feels insulting to Moscato. And (laughs) let me clarify, there are many, many great Moscatos out there. But like, I think I think they were talking about like the really cheap you know, like Sutter Home. The sickly sweet. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's... Which which suits her because 
when you think of every image that you see of her, it's that mm -hmm. sickly pink pastel color to kind of give you the idea of like, oh, no, she's sweet and girly. And then the minute like anything comes out of her mouth, you know that it's otherwise. Yeah. And that scene, you know, the scene where like basically, you know, child abuse where <laughs> Harry goes to detention. And that that I think was one of the scariest moments to me. The quill etching into his skin as he writes and and surrounded by those plate the decorated plates with kittens on them and just like exactly. the imagery is so soft pink. and yet this horrible horrible thing is happening to him yes yes and i think that that's a very good example of you know like everything is not what it seems yeah this scary you know this this lady who her little <laughs> Oh my god, that oh, what's her name? Imelda Staunton, who she plays so her good. in Oh, she was so good. She was one of uh It made me you know, like it's really hard watching actors I love play such despicable characters mm -hmm. sometimes. It's like how I felt about David Tennant in Jessica Jones. I had yeah. a really hard time watching that because I was like, No, he can't <laughs> he yeah. can't be an evil rapist which um, uh, which like sidebar to jessica jones for a second is a great casting choice because of that because most abusers you know absolutely. they don't look like an abuser they don't look evil they're actually usually very charming so that's why they're able to abuse people and people stay exactly anyway rant rant over about a, a relationship abuse no 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 i mean i yes that could we could talk a lot more about that especially in the context of jessica jones but yeah. we'll we'll save that for next time <laughs> but so i have another pairing well i think that like yes that kind of sickly sweet moscato is a great pairing for umbridge i have another one okay. which brings us back to argentina mm. and that is the grape torrantes okay and torrantes it's a white grape and it is i believe unique to Argentina and it came to be oh my god all the Argentina all the people listening in Argentina are just like I hate this girl why is she why is she <laughs> hating on our wines I'm like no 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 wait hear me out um but so Torontes is a kind of natural hybrid that happened between a grape that I've talked about a couple times on the podcast before called Mission or Pais which came from Spain mm -hmm. that crossed naturally with I believe muscat or yellow muscat okay which is a very aromatic wine yes or oh oh yes that's right muscat of Alexandria which that's a cool story which I actually talk about in the Garth Nix episode of pairing so go check <laughs> that out too it's all connected it's all connected so it yielded this new wine which Okay, let me clarify. There are, I have had good Torontes, mm -hmm. but for the most part, to me, it is so floral and aromatic and often without any kind of like vibrancy or in okay. interesting like acidity or fruit to it. So to me, it like kind of feels like I'm drinking perfume when I drink Torontes. Mm -hmm. And I do not, it is not my favorite grape in the world. Okay. I'm sorry, Argentina. That's not to say that there aren't some that are very well made and that 
if you like that, that's totally fine. There's nothing there's nothing like inherently bad about it. Mm-hmm. I just I just don't like that. And so I think that that's another good one for for Umbridge because she's again, she's got that kind of like flowery persona. Sure. And but behind it there's no real good substance. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And so just uh, since we're back to Argentina, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the other major grapes of Argentina, which I do like. So so that all my Argentine friends don't don't hate me forever. Sure, sure. So I mentioned Malbec, which is by far the most important grape of Argentina at this point. Mm-hmm. And so originally it came from France. It's actually one of the five major grapes of Bordeaux. It's mm-hmm. it's a blending grape usually. It's it, it used in pretty small amounts in Bordeaux generally. Um, but it's most famous in a region called Cahors in okay. France, which is just, I believe, just to the east of Bordeaux. Uh, Malbec is the primary grape there. And its original name, it's like its true name is Cote or Co. I don't I don't know how to pronounce French. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but C-O-T. And apparently it started to be called Malbec as slang because Malbec literally means bad mouth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So apparently, like, it's like you're bad mouthing somebody, which also feels appropriate to to this book. But yeah, I feel like, you know, both between a lot of people bad mouthing this book and <laughs> within the book itself, a lot of uh, people bad mouthing each other mm-hmm. feels appropriate. Sure. You know, and as I mentioned, you know, Malbec, I feel like it gets a lot of people into wine, which is great. And then at, at a certain point after you've had more wines, it can kind of not taste as interesting. Mm-hmm. It falls victim, I think, to what most bad wine falls victim to, which is that because it's so mass produced and people are looking for consistency, winemakers just put way too much oak on it. And so it's just like it can be really oaky and kind of just almost kind of sweet in a mm-hmm. way. And so at it, at its worst, it's like over overly ripe and oaky um, but at its best it can be pretty nuanced and what I love in Malbec is it's got like this kind of violet note to it mm-hmm. and um, and it can be very spicy and also have like a little bit more kind of like mocha or cocoa notes to it sure. um, and and more like dark sour fruit like blackberry mm. that Malbec I love mm-hmm. that sounds more my jam yeah totally and so the the story that I tell about how I came back to really liking Malbec was I was in, you know, this tasting group with a bunch of other people going for the, some sommelier certification or whatever. And um, we blind tasted this one wine. And I was like, oh, this is Beaujolais from uh, from France. It's a Morgan Cotepie, which is my favorite. And I love it. Oh, my God. I love this wine. And I was so off. It was an Argentine Malbec. And I was like, oh, maybe like, I am. Okay. Maybe I like Malbec. <laughs> I see you, Malbec. So I see you, Malbec. That's why I love blind tasting because, and I wish you could apply that to more things in life mm-hmm. because, because it really is you're taking away your own bias if you don't know what it is when you drink it. It's why It's why I generally don't, like when I'm running tastings, I don't like to tell people what they're going to taste before they taste it. Mm-hmm. Because there's a part of your brain that if you hear that, you're going to taste what people tell you you're going to taste. Right. And I like 
letting people having their own experience because you literally can't be wrong. If yeah. you taste something, you're you're not wrong. It's fair. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on there, Emma. Now seems like a good time to talk about a great Malbec I had recently, which was sent to me by Wink. Like I mentioned, my favorite Malbecs are the ones that have those violet blackberry components that are smooth without being too oaky. And the Mercana Malbec fits all of those descriptions, and it's available through Wink, my favorite wine subscription service. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. What sets Wink apart is the quality of the wines they're providing, and the Mercana Malbec is no exception. It's a perfect barbecue wine, and since I'm now married to a Texan, I eat a lot more barbecue than I used to, so I'm definitely going to have to keep that one in stock. My other recommendation for this week is the Keep It Chill Gamay. Anyone who knows me knows that one of the things I care most about in the wine world is keeping reds a little bit chilled. And this one is a delicious, dry, light red wine that you can totally drink, totally chilled. It's the perfect summer red for when it's super hot but you don't feel like white or rosé, which is kind of where I am right now. It makes me so happy. And you can try these wines and so many more by going to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. You'll take their palate quiz. They'll recommend four wines to you. You can go with those or add, subtract, switch out, whatever. There is no commitment and no fees, and you can skip at any time. I also love that for each bottle they send you, they also give you a recipe to make that pairs well with it. I'm always looking for new things to cook, and Wink saves me the trouble of having to think about what I'm going to make. And right now, Wink is offering our listeners $22 off your first order when you go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast. And it gets even better. I know you all hate paying for shipping, so Wink will actually pay for your shipping on orders of four bottles or more. So take something off your to-do list. Just go to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast to get $22 off your first order now. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash pairingpodcast. Now, back to the show. The last major grape in Argentina is my personal favorite, and it is called Bonarda. Okay. It is not the same. There's a Bonarda in Italy, and it's not the same because mm. it would be too easy to call them two different things. But so Argentine Bonarda, it has a lot in common with Malbec, I would say, but it's it's kind of a little bit lighter, usually a little bit lighter, a little bit spicier. And it is traditionally paired with goat in Argentina, hmm. which is one of the, like, I believe, you know, traditional fairs of, of the country. Sure. Yeah, when I was doing all this research for Argentina, I was like, oh, my God, I want to go to Argentina so bad. Mm. They drink all the wine and they make all the good food. Mm. And Now it's, I just want barbecue. Um, I know. Oh, man. You're catching me at the, the end of my day and I'm always hungry around this time. So. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm, I'm just always hungry. Fair. <laughs> so there we go. But, yeah, okay, so those are the three major grapes that I wanted to talk about. Tarante, Malbec, and Bonarda that are kind of like not not exclusive to but unique to Argentina, um, very authentically Argentinian. But they also, you know, they do Cabernet Sauvignon. I've had some Cabernet Francs from Argentina that I mm-hmm. thought were really good and really interesting. And that's another grape that often gets forgotten. But I love Cab Franc. 
I've had a lot of good, really, uh, really tasty Argentine Chardonnay. And they also do like Merlot. And like they they've got a little bit of everything as well. But that's the major wines that they make there that generally get exported. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also a lot of like indigenous or not exactly indigenous because I believe they were brought over by the Spanish missionaries, but have become sort of unique to Argentina. So if you are in Argentina and you're listening, hit me up and let me know what kind of like authentically Argentine wines you like. Heck yeah. Because we don't get all of them in the United States. We don't. Very limited. We are. We are in in more ways than one. More (laughs) ways than one. Okay. So let's talk about Dumbledore's army, which we mentioned, because I feel like that is I, I have the <laughs> the the little graphic in the book is Dobby wearing all the hats that Hermione Aww. made. Ugh, so sad. So sad. I also I've mentioned this before. Sorry, quick quick tangent before we go into Dumbledore's army, but one thing I don't like is how JK kind of deals with um spew mm. and and Hermione's attempt to be socially conscious mm-hmm. because she's only ever really mocked for it. Like, yeah. you know, even Harry and Ron, like they're just kind of like putting up with her. And like, I get it, but, but I do think it's, I wish that it were treated with a little bit more seriousness, Yeah, I guess. It does also kind of suck too, because Hermione is by all intents and purposes in the series, a minority woman who yeah, is advocating for another magical minority with the yep. just the way that the house elves are positioned in the series. So to have these two men of privilege in a lot of ways just kind of telling yep. her she's being ridiculous, it sucks. Yep. Maybe, yeah, maybe JK meant that more as like a, a social commentary on, you know, the patriarchy, but I don't think probably she not. intended it that way. We can read <laughs> into it, it really... as much as we want, but probably not what was we intended. Can. But let's talk about Dumbledore's army because Dumbledore's army is pretty awesome. Ooh, also forgot to mention, speaking of new characters in this book, possibly my favorite character in the series, Luna Lovegood. Oh, so good. I love Luna. So wonderful. Oh my God. She is so wonderful. Just like from a from the standpoint of... Everything in the magical world is very believable because mm-hmm. it's it's established that it is believable. Like Harry's like, whoa, what's yeah. that? Ron's like, what? You've never seen a flying broom before? Like that kind of thing right. has happened throughout right. the entire series. So to introduce a character that believes stuff that not even the wizards believe is such a fun little addition to the dynamic of the wizarding world. It really is. That's It's such a fun conceit. I love it. <laughs> and and she's just so like also to have to have a character who really doesn't care what other people think about her yeah. is really refreshing in a book about teenagers yep. that you know and especially for people like us who like grew up with the books that you know by the time we got to this book and all this angsty stuff is happening and you know Harry and Cho are dating and it goes really badly and then you know Ginny is dating somebody and then all this stuff is happening and Ron and Hermione is like will they won't they will they won't they mm-hmm. for for you know six books and then to have this character of Luna who I think that she has like social consciousness mm-hmm. but she just doesn't 
She just doesn't care. Yeah. And she is who she is. And that's really important, I think, to have examples of characters like that for kids yeah. to, look, to look towards. Okay. Dumbledore's army. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just from the standpoint of active teenage rebellion and what children can do against a fascist government, yeah. it's very good. It's very good. And I think what is the most striking to me is I feel like it marks more than anything a huge shift for Hermione mm-hmm. because up until this point I mean she'll you know she's been breaking rules here and there but this is a pretty like intense active rebellion against basically a fascist regime yeah and she sees it happening you know the the you know as someone who always was a rule follower growing up you know always did my homework and always did the right thing and did what I was told and all that to suddenly see this character who for a long time was very much like that and I related to suddenly like rebelling in that way and being so smart about it that also is really important for kids to read this is also one of those no this is one of those instances of hermione just throughout the series has these moments of like absolute ruthlessness that i don't think are acknowledged too often the main one being like obliviating her parents memories of her so that they aren't impacted by the war in the seventh book but the whole thing with, I'm going to forget the poor girl's name, uh, Edgecombe is her last name. Something with an M. Oh. Marianne Edgecombe. Mar- Mar- Marissa something mm. like that. Something like that. Edgecombe, though. Yes. I'm going to check. Uh, Cho's friend. Yes. Cho's friend. Marietta. Marietta. Which, oh, <laughs> there, is a, there is a winery called Marietta in in california marietta cellars there we go they make pretty good wine all right there you go unlike (laughs) unlike this girl though they probably aren't um, unlike this girl a betraying and like even even then like she quote-unquote betrayed them but at the same time like this girl's mother's job was being threatened and probably her family's livelihood like i would probably rat on this group that i really have zero alliance to if that was my situation yeah absolutely going back to hermione's ruthlessness like we even see it in the the first book she lights snape on fire that is true that is true she definitely does (laughs) that her her instinct in times of great stakes is to let loose yeah and she's using her immense skill towards good is not quite even enough to to towards justice towards what's yes. right i guess yeah. or at least what she perceives to be right which we are meant to perceive to be right as well yes i, I think that hermione very much has a sense of justice and has a sense of right you even look at the second book she brews a highly difficult but also probably pretty illegal potion in order totally. to figure out who the heir of slytherin is so she's just doing all of these things that I I can't imagine myself as a 11 to 17-year-old doing these things. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very true. Um and 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 you're right. It really does escalate with each book. It's not even so much that that is out of character or anything, but that it just like this was such an intense example of her doing that and being so again, like clever about it. And it is really satisfying watching all these kids band together and and 
get better and better at what they do. Mm-hmm. And and I think, again, I think going to Neville and seeing, like, Neville's journey throughout this book yeah. is a really interesting one. You know, no no one really gives him the time of day. You know, he's kind of a joke to everybody for a long time. And when Harry actually, like, gives him attention, and it also says a lot about Harry, too, that Harry is patient and kind um, Mm -hmm. as a teacher. Yeah. And the fact that Neville is one of the ones who comes with them to the... Department of Mysteries. Department of Mysteries. Thank you. Yeah, the the ending of this book is incredible. Yeah. Like the 700 pages leading up to it are really good and the, again, the more I go back, I enjoy them, but I remember even at the time reading this book, I was like, "Oh my god." Mm-hmm. Also, <laughs> that's right. Okay, so I remember when I first read this book, I was living at the camp, the music camp that my mom runs that I, I lived at and was a babysitter at for many years. With I've heard these stories before. Yes, yes. I remember that it came out and I read it, you know, like in two days or something. And, um, and then I lent it, I think I lent it to my dad to read. But there were a bunch of kids at this camp who either hadn't read it yet or, like, weren't going to be able to read it until they got home from camp or something like something like that. And I remember at dinner one night, my dad, like, told everybody that Sirius died. And, and I was like, Dad, you're about to get murdered by, like, a gang of 14-year-old girls. Yeah. And you, and you deserve it, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Man, that was... I think that was the first time a book made me cry, except for Old Yeller when I was a child. Yeah. Like, Sirius had been probably my favorite character up until that point, and this book had solidified it for me because I just thought he was a fascinating character and a great, like, representation of someone who is redeemed, which uh, Mm -hmm. me being the, the... mythology nerd that i was i was like oh man of course he he's the odysseus he's the um um but you know he was a character that was lost and then was found again and was on his way to becoming like a member of society again the fact that he's cut he's just cut from that part of the story and his ability to come back all of the way is so frustrating and disheartening and the fact that he's just the only family member that harry really has left is oh god it just kills me every time i think about it 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 really does and and along the lines of what we've been talking about with the book with her kind of with jk rowling subverting our expectations like i feel like her killing Sirius was very much it hurts so bad because like, we just got him, you know? You know, he, he was a character in the third book, mm-hmm. but not till really the end of the book did we really get to know who he was, actually. Yeah. And then we see him a little bit in the fourth book. On the run, but though, not... but, like, not a functioning member of society. He's he's living in caves eating rats as a dog. Like, that's not a life that you want him to live. No. And then so finally, like, he gets to at least live in a house, even if it's a house that he has to, like, stay in all the time. And we get to see him spend time with Harry and, like, be be that parental figure that Harry's been looking for, even though Sirius is never really a good parental figure. He was just looking for his lost friend in Harry, but that's besides the point. Well, and talking about, like, mental illness, like, we could, like, it would be interesting to 
get more of the book from Sirius's perspective mm-hmm. because he basically lost 12 years of his life. And so what he remembers was being a young man who lost his best friend. Yeah. And then he went to prison for 12 years. Right. And, and you have no chance to mature as a human being when you're locked up in basically what is solitary confinement as far as what we know yeah. about Azkaban is. Yeah. Talk about talk about needing to go to therapy. Um, <laughs> you know, like, I know that a lot of people criticize Sirius for his not so great role as a parent. But he's also, like, making decisions with the mindset of, like, a 20-year-old. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that more than anything, like he has the emotional maturity of a 20 year old because that, like he didn't really get a chance to mature beyond that. Exactly. And that that just reminds me as well, like talking about how we're getting to like the part of the cool thing about this book and seeing the order of the Phoenix and like the old order of the Phoenix um, from, you know, 15 years ago. They're not that old. Like they were all like 20 when they were fighting Voldemort the first time, the the adults in this book, for the most part, are or like the gen like Lupin and Sirius, right? The Marauders era, yeah, the Marauders era. They're not that old. They're like I'm closer to that age now than I am to yeah. I to mean, like they're Harry. like late thirties, early forties, probably, right? Yeah, so or like mid mid to late thirties yeah. or something like that. I forget exactly how how the ages and the timelines work out, but like that's a hell of a lot to do you know while still being pretty pretty damn young yeah lily was according to the wikipedia was 23 when she died sorry that might be a uh rpg wikipedia page one second she oh no even worse 21 when she died according to the yeah that's official one because yeah, because as far as I recall, like, not that much time happens after they graduate Hogwarts and then have to fight Voldemort. Yeah. So so if she's 21, let's assume that Sirius and Lupin are about the same age. Yeah, I mean, they were all in the same year, so that would make sense. Right, so they'd be, so they'd be like, 36, 37 years old. Whew. That's... <laughs> oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. While, you know, like, the Weasleys are a little bit older. Yeah. They're, I think... They're supposed to be a little bit older. They're supposed to be Lucius Malfoy's age, which is, I yeah. think, maybe a good 10 years older than the rest of the crowd. Yeah, clo- closer to 50. Maybe not quite 50, but... Mm-hmm. Okay, just a couple la- quick last things about Argentina that yes. are sort of related to what we were talking about. I wanted to give a couple recommendations of producers like wines to look out for from Argentina and the biggest one is Bodega Catena Zapata which was founded by Nicolas Catena and it's really the winery that put Argentina on the map like in an international way like mm-hmm. they started making like really high-end wines mm-hmm. they they you know they've got different levels so you can you can get Catena wines that are like under $20 that are around $20 and then some that are like 50, 100, and above. However, the winery is now run by someone who I've talked about a lot on the podcast before, Laura Catena, because she is my hero. <laughs> and let me just let me just tell you a little bit about Laura. Okay, so she is she's not the winemaker, but she is the managing director. And she is also a doctor of emergency medicine. She went to Harvard 
and then to Stanford grad school. So she splits her time between, you know, working at the winery in Argentina and being a emergency medicine physician in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So to me, she is like she's like the Hermione Granger of the wine world. Love because it. she she is badass and takes no prisoners. But so that's Katana, and then another Katana who doesn't work for the winery, but Ernesto is Laura's brother, and he does his own thing. And if Laura is the Hermione Granger of the wine world, Ernesto's like the Luna Lovegood of the wine world. Um, he similarly did like a ton of things. Okay. Ernesto is a fourth generation winemaker who has traveled and lived around the world and along the way has earned a bachelor's degree in computer science and, and economy, a master's in design in Milan, and a degree in history in London. <laughs> Defined by many as the quote unquote bohemian side of the Catena family, Ernesto is a tireless and avid reader, painter, art collector, horseman, polar player, polo Dang. player, and archer. That's so many things. So, I know. He is, he is like, incredible. I remember, cause I, I remember learning about him because I was pouring one of his wines, and I was, like, doing some research on him. I was like, oh, my God, I want to meet this guy. <laughs> He's, like, my hero. But so he, he makes a bunch of different wine. He's under a, a few different labels. Um, and he makes a lot of really good Malbec that's very affordable. He makes one called Padrios, one called Tahuan. Um, he's also got a line called Siesta and like a bunch of other. Oh, yeah. And he also oversees a winery called Tikal, T-I-K-A-L. And yeah, so he is he is just awesome. And so I just wanted to tell you about the Catena family because they're probably the most important people in Argentina. And they are so badass that they could totally be a part of Dumbledore's army yeah, they and can. fight Voldemort. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. I also, okay, this is fun. There's one other producer that I wanted to specifically talk about called Sucardi. Um, they're, they're maybe like the second biggest producer in Argentina. And they've got a couple of different sub-labels. And they they have wines that are both of our names, which mm. I thought was super cool. So there's an Emma Bonarda that they make, and they have a whole line of Santa Julia wines, mm. which are awesome. And specifically the sparkling, the Santa Julia sparkling wines that they make are really, really good. Oh I'm going to have to look out for those then. Yeah, um, you definitely should. The Blanc de Blanc, which means it's made from 100% Chardonnay, Oof. is so good. And it's like 15 bucks a bottle. Nice. I had I had it as my, like, sparkling wine at my wedding, mm -hmm. if that gives you any sense of how good I think it was. I, clearly. I don't think that your wedding wine choices would be bad. No. I tried I tried to pick good ones. That, <laughs> But also, you know, I didn't want to spend a ton Affordable. of money. Yeah, no, no, so. I got you. <laughs> yeah. So, so for the money, it's terrific. Mm -hmm. Then... I'll just I'll just give you a couple more recommendations and then we can close out the conversation about Order of the Phoenix. Sounds good. One of my other favorite producers is called Altos Las Hormigas and hormigas means ants and so they they usually have <laughs> some ants on the label which is cute. Aww. They make really really good Malbec at very good prices as well. They also have a very good inexpensive Bonarda called Colonia Las Liebres. Mm. So I love that one. Another badass lady winemaker is Susana Balbo. 
She's mm-hmm. awesome. She makes really good wine. Um, a kind of higher-end producer in, in Argentina is Achaval Ferrer. Like, they've got some, like, $20 Malbecs, and then they've got, like, a, a like couple hundred dollar bottles of Malbec, which I've never had. I've never had Malbec that expensive, but I'd like to try it. And then last but not least, I know, as, because I said I'd mention something about Patagonian wine, um, there's a winery called Bodega Chakra in Patagonia, and they make actually mostly Pinot Noir, which is unusual in yeah. in Argentina, but it's really, really good. They also make a Merlot that I had that was really, really tasty. Nice. Yeah. So that's just that's just a little a little more on what to look out for specifically something, something. in Argentina. There's so many there's so many great producers in Argentina. So that's just like that's just a few that I like, but there's mm. there's tons. The problem is if you don't know, it's hard to know which ones are the good ones and which ones are not. Yeah. Um, but that's just that's it's just a matter of educating yourself and trial and error. Absolutely. And I will do my best to steer everybody in the right direction. That's why you're here. That's why we appreciate that you. That is Oh, thank you. Thank you. Someone's got to do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. Any last thoughts about Order of the Phoenix? There's there's so much to unpack here. So, you know, like we could easily talk about this book for hours and hours and hours. I, I think if we're going to just wrap it up with thoughts, question and fight against authority. Uh, fascism is terrible. And people with mental illnesses should find the right treatment for them i think that's a really great summary of order of the phoenix and as it has <laughs> as it plays a role in in our in our life yeah no we could do this chapter by chapter that's the problem with this book it's so loaded yeah. with just information and and themes but but thankfully we, we're not gonna do chapter by chapter we're gonna wrap it up luckily here. somewhat Someone else did that. <laughs> Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike Schubert. Yeah. So, okay. So I guess the last thing I'll close it out because um, it has been my tradition with these Harry Potter episodes to pair a different grape with the trio. Okay. Uh, because as the books go on, they grow and mature and change. And since we're and since we're talking about Argentina, I do think that Malbec is actually a really great grape for Harry in this book mm-hmm. because he has highs and lows. He kind of goes all over the place. Um, <laughs> at some time, you know, sometimes he's kind of that like really jammy over oaky Malbec who just like can't be nice to people for, you know, to save his life. But then sometimes he has really great moments like with Neville, like with the with Dumbledore's army. Um, and, and that's that kind of more like refined example of Malbec. So I think that I think that that's a good grape for Harry. Selfishly, I would give Hermione Bonarda if we're talking about sure. Argentina because uh because she is a badass and just continues to be more so mm-hmm. in this book. And my anecdote about Bonarda is um at the same tasting group that I went to, you know, after we did our like, you know, official ta- blind tasting that everybody would open up other bottles and we'd like try other stuff and just hang out and eat and have a great time. And at one point, my friend, he was like, okay, I've got, I've got something that I want you all to blind taste. None of you are going to get it. It's not testable is what we call 
you, you know, grapes that would be on the on the SOM test. Okay. Um, and Bonarda is not a testable grape, at least definitely not at level two. I don't think at level three, maybe if you're going for your master's, it might be on there. But so he poured this wine and for some reason I, I like I smelled it and I sipped it and I was like, it's Argentine Bonarda. I don't drink that much Argentine Bonarda. I don't know why I called it, but I did. I, I did. It's like I had this psychic moment with this wine. (laughs) So it's always had it's always had a soft spot in my heart. Love it. And it's it's really really good. And then with Ron, I had I had a hard time. I didn't want to give him Tarantes because I feel like I'm mean to Ron, and I give I always give him like <laughs> the, the grape wine. that's left out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for him, I think like kind of like an Argentine Cab Franc, like I was talking about before, mm-hmm. because that is a grape that often actually is kind of forgotten when it comes to Argentine wine, but is actually really really good. Mm-hmm. So. And, you know, like in every book, Ron gets a little bit better and better. You know, he he makes more mistakes. He does, doesn't he? Yeah. Which he starts he starts playing Quidditch in this book. He does. Um, Forgot about that for a second. Yeah. There, there's that whole. Yeah. We didn't really get into like the the interpersonal goings on of the teenagers like, you know, Cho Chang. And uh... is this the book that he starts in? I thought he starts in the sixth one. No, he actually starts in this book. I thought so, too, because in the movies, they don't show him playing Quidditch until the sixth book. Right. And I remember him having to retry out in the sixth one and the whole Cormac McLaggen shit. Exactly. Oh, Cormac McLaggen. We all know a Cormac McLaggen. Uh, But I do believe that he starts playing in this book because at a certain point, Umbridge kicks Harry and... Fred off the team mm-hmm. and then like right so yes it's like and Ginny becomes the seeker but yes. Ron is the keeper now I remember this that makes sense yeah yeah but yeah I think this is the one I think this is the one where we first get like the Weasley is our king song yes which is one of my favorite one of my favorite ones of all time Weasley is our king yeah I don't know I think that might be sixth because I don't think he gets like no. good until the sixth one, and that's when they start. I actually, I don't fucking know. Who can say? It it is this book. I'm looking at um the lion and the serpent okay, chapter good. nineteen. Then, absolutely. Then it starts as a Slytherin song. Weasley cannot save a thing. He cannot block a single ring. That's why the Slytherins all sing. Weasley is our king. Yes. And so so that's that happens in this book, and then Harry and. Either Fred and or George get kicked off. They the both, team. all three of them do. All three of them do. That's Which right. is funny because like one of the twins is holding the other twin back, and she's like, "You, you're done too." And he's like, "Why?" Yeah, yeah. He's all like, right. "I didn't do anything." Yeah, but yeah. So I feel like okay, this is making me feel better about giving wrong Cab Franc because Cab Franc is super underrated, and much like Ron, uh, and it's by the end of the book, he 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 gets better at Quidditch. He's there for his bro. He makes mistakes. That's the thing I love about Ron. He, he makes a lot of mistakes, but mm-hmm. you still got to love him. <laughs> Thank Merlin for Ron. Thank Merlin for Ron. Well, I think that is what I've got, unless you've got any anything else. No, the problem is I could talk about this for hours, and I yeah, don't want to have exactly. to edit that. <laughs> yeah, yep, yep. That is that is totally fair. Uh, the, the last thing I will say is that I do think that Cho Chang 
speaking of someone needing help and not getting much God, someone sympathy. Helped Cho Chang. Someone helped Cho Chang. Girl. Oh my God, this poor girl. Um, but, you know, also sort of like Spew doesn't get treated as seriously as it should. I feel like Neither Cho does doesn't Chang. get. Yeah. Yeah. Justice for Cho. Poor girl. Poor girl. Well, on that note, Julia, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I think that all of our listeners know who you are and what you do, but just in case they don't. Uh, check out the Whisper Forge. I might have a new show coming out by the time this episode <gasps> premieres. You'll Amazing. find out more about it then. Um, oh and God. check out Multitude Productions, multitude.productions for all of the shows that we do. Multitude focuses on shows that are about loving things complexly. So we do mm-hmm. Potterless, we do Spirits, we do Join the Party, we do Horse. So yeah, that's all my stuff. And you can find me at Julia Shafini on Twitter or at my website, juliashafini.com. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Julia, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure having you on Pairing. Thank you for having me. And for being a part of the Pairing team. Ah, anytime. Make sure to check out all of Julia's other podcasts while you wait for our next episode. And while you're at it, head on over to trywink.com slash pairingpodcast for $22 off your first order of wine. You can drink the wine while you listen to some of our other episodes with Julia, like Thor and women's wrestling. Thank you for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine. Pairing was created, hosted, and produced by Emma Scherzarko, with music and audio recording by Winston Shaw and logo artwork by Darcy Zimmerman and Katie Huey. This episode was edited by Emma Scherzarko. Follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at Pairing Podcast to keep tabs on what we're up to. And feel free to send us any thoughts, questions, requests, and pairings of your own on our website, thepairingpodcast.com, via email at pairingpodcast at gmail.com, or on any social media platform. Come check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash pairingpodcast, where you can pledge as little as $1 a month and get access to exclusive content, customized pairings from me, live streams, and more. Check out our new merch store on our website at thepairingpodcast.com slash merch. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends. Thank you so much for listening to Pairing, where you come for the stories and stay for the wine.